Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome into the Friday edition of Middays with Gerard Gibbert. I am not Gerard Gibbert. I am Will East, who you hear on the show from time to time. And the reason why you're hearing my voice instead of Gerard's is because, just like everybody else right now, Gerard is a bit under the weather. Felt okay yesterday and just couldn't make a go of it today. I mean, you probably know someone right now in your life that is not feeling well right now. It seems to be going around. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring you some interviews and stories from earlier this week as we kicked off the 2024 Mississippi legislative session. And hopefully Gerard will be back up and running on Monday. We welcome to the program now Senator Nicole Akins Boyd represents District 9, which includes Lafayette and Panola counties. You've got uh, some statewide elected officials that uh, have to go through their ceremonious swearing in today, right? Yes, we'll do that, and we'll do some of it tomorrow, too, and um, look at um, – we're very excited about it today at 2 o'clock. So, okay. yeah, we'll okay. um, get everybody sworn in and all official, and then we'll have the governor um, next Tuesday. And um, But we are down here, but we're all viciously right now trying to work on our legislation, trying to get it ready to go, um, looking at drafts from drafting right now. Okay. And um, meeting with everybody, trying to um, get those bills in line. So, what's the schedule on making the committee uh, uh, chair appointments and um, assignments? You know, we have not been given a schedule. I know the House um, actually just asked for it because they couldn't do it earlier because they only officially elected their speaker yesterday. They asked for um, the committee interest forms to okay. be turned in by this Friday. Okay. So it should take them um, a little bit of time to kind of fetter through that. Um, the Senate, we did that process back in November, I think it was, where we turned in, or maybe it was December, that we turned in our um, preferences. And so I don't know when the lieutenant governor is set to announce that at this point. Okay. So. All right. Well, uh, so here we go. I did see that uh, – is there like a, a new committee that Lieutenant there, Governor announced, there, an efficiency committee or something to that effect? It's a, it's a, a governance committee, and it's going to look at state government from what we understand. Um, okay. There was a lot of talk last session, a lot of questions that came up as to – why we have certain agencies that we do, how sure. it's organized that we do. And sometimes the way we've done it in the past is not the most efficient no process. Yeah. We have um, duplicity in some of the yep. things that we're doing. And so there's no need in that. And okay. so um, I think I'm hoping that um, didn't give very many details yesterday, but I'm 
very hopeful that this committee will really um, fetter out where we've got those inefficiencies in state government and we can do um, hopefully some um, really kind of reorganize some things where they need to be reorganized yeah. and get um, a better system in place. So. Yeah. Of course, you know, any time that that should involve the elimination of staff, that's always a, a very controversial well, issue. Well, we have eliminated a great deal of staff over this past four years. Yeah. Um, we have done that um, there, um, and we have eliminated a tremendous amount of state pens. And yep. to the listeners out there who don't know what a state pen is, um, it it's basically the position. Yeah. And so we had a numerous amounts of state pens that were not filled. Yeah, not being filled. They were not being filled, and so we got rid of those. Yep. And um, so we have done a great job over the last four years of really trimming down government yeah. um, best that we could. And so um, we have um, really worked on that, and so I'm – really optimistic of what um, we have a lot of boards and commissions boy don't we i mean and the question is (laughs) full-time job to appoint them for the governor's office it's yes and so the question is do we need that many boards and commissions Um, maybe if they have a super specialty they need to be there but there's some that could be merged and combined and as this process has gone on this past four years we found out boards some boards and commissions that aren't doing a great job And um, I don't want to call them out today, but um, I think you'll see that maybe those boards and commissions need to be merged, and we need to find um, you know a better way to do these things. Okay. So um, it's probably something we should be continuously looking at in government. Absolutely. I think that's why it's a good permanent committee. Um, we need to always be looking at our efficiencies, just like any private, private entity. Business. Sure. Yeah. Just yeah. like any private major corporation would do. They have people. They had parts of their organization that look at efficiencies. And so I think it's a smart move on the lieutenant governor's part to really do this committee. We call it BPR, Business Process Reengineering, by the way. It's a a term that we often use in the private sector. And there there, there are other acronyms to refer to that that, uh, uh, procedure as well, if you will. But yeah, okay, so good. Um, I think there's some opportunities there. Uh, I'm going to mention something that's kind of small, but it's always been a hang-up with me that I think could help us in this arena. And that is the law that uh, currently exists in Mississippi that uh, prohibits a public sector entity from absorbing credit card fees. And uh, the reason I say I think that would that's something we ought to repeal that would go a long way towards um, achieving efficiencies is, it, as you well know, there are a lot of people that could transact with the state or their city or county um, online if they didn't have to absorb those credit card fees. And my guess is we need a whole lot fewer people in buildings to deal with that, uh, th- those transactions that well, we do now. And I will tell you, I actually have approached, um, okay. particularly after the pandemic, because okay, sure. we ne- had more people doing that, and I had my local entities approach. And um, basically what came down from the lawyers is um, that would be a donation. And so we have a constitutional provision in the Constitution. A constitutional provision. So the constitutional provision kind of – so it might be something we need to make a constitutional change on, own those particular credit card fees. But they did come down that uh, – talking with the lawyers, it was a problem because that would be considered then a donation. What in the world is that doing in the Constitution? Well – D- donations are prohibited. I get it. So anyway, so but it is something that um, my local um, government um, entities approach me about. Okay. 
And so I was like, guys, we got to change this. This is illogical. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, uh, playing property taxes, renewing car exactly. tags, all that, those kinds of transactions. And, you know, when the deadline's around, you know, this, all, all the, the offices, the tax collector offices in the state got lines. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what, um, so we absolutely have, um, we are continuously looking at that and trying to push the envelope and say, okay, is that really a donation? So. Um, Well, I'm encouraging you to continue to work. Uh, We will do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I honestly do think that could, uh, that could help. All right. So uh, lots of, uh, I think, high profile issues that pretty much everybody knows about that uh, the legislature is going to, going to take up. What's on your radar? Um, Well, I'm going to continue um chaired the women children's and families um committee last year yeah. we did 11 pieces of legislation we got passed in one session on that but those particular issues i'm going to continue um looking at that we're going to let some of those laws take effect okay. um and see how they pan out and do that but then we also had um, did a lot of work this summer even during an election year um we um really had some great committee processes going on we had an early intervention task force and i have to give a shout out to all these citizens that serve on these task force. We had three different ones going on. We had a youth court task force. We had an adoption foster care task force, and we had an early intervention task force. And those citizens from around the state do that. There's no money. There's no per diem. They um, work, and our committees worked really hard this summer on those three particular issues. So um, we're going to do some probably technical changes on adoption and foster care so we can move those children out of the foster care system faster. Get them to permanent homes faster. Um, they recommended a lot of technical changes um, to do that. So I think those will be forthcoming. Um, on the early intervention um, system, we hopefully will be continue that task force. We know that we have kind of a broken early intervention system, and we are working directly with the health department. Um, and they have stepped up and made some significant changes and are continuing to make those changes. Dr. Edney has showed great leadership on that. And um, we are all working to do that. So hopefully that task force will continue um, so that we can uh, really make that system a much better system and serve those children earlier, which we'll know will lead to a lot of changes. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, I think, that's not well known by the public, that whole world. Right. Um, and, and if you have the opportunity to hear um, Andrea Sanders, who runs Child Protective exactly. Services, talk, uh, it'll shake you to the core. It will. And she does a tremendous job she doing sure this, and she's yeah. really behind pushing a lot of these changes. You can hang around with us for another second. We got yeah. Senator Nicole Akins Boyd in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. Watch your favorite Super Talk shows in HD. Just go to supertalktv.com. Ever wonder what goes on in the studio during the shows? Now you can watch what happens in HD. Super Talk TV, streaming now on supertalktv.com. You know that nowadays most people go online to look at a business before they spend their money? And a lot of businesses are losing opportunities to get new customers if they aren't online. 
With the power of STMM Digital, you can reach potential customers and get more referrals and repeat business. The highly trained and trusted team at STMM Digital is ready to work with you to help your business capitalize on the power of digital marketing. Call 601-991-2305 or go to stmmdigital.com to get started today. This show was previously recorded. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. It's day two of the legislative <laughs> session, and now that it looks like we got the bomb threat over with, uh, you guys can get back down to the building and conduct uh, business. Uh, so I, I know that uh, you've served on uh, committees involving um, uh, families and, and health care in the past. Uh, you've got some background in that as an attorney, your husband, a physician. You have some exposure. You'll probably end up, don't you think, in some capacity in those committees? Is that kind of what you expect? I have no, you know, at this point we have no way of knowing, but I'll always, no matter if I'm on a committee or not in that, I'm going to be working kind of in this arena. Um, have a background too, also in working in public health initiatives um, and making systemic changes in the state that is unhealthy yeah. and how we do that. And there's so many social factors, too, that enter into this. It's a complex problem very. that has to be approached, really, with very complex solutions. And so um, I'm looking forward to um, – I think this is very important. I think um, the lieutenant governor has continued to emphasize um, his – um, efforts to make sure that we are looking at our health crisis. Um, the speaker yesterday indicated that he was dedicated to looking at that. He did. Um, and so we saw the governor do something about that um, this summer and looking at hospitals. So I think we have um, a mission from, you know, undoubtedly three of our state's most important leaders that they are all looking at our health care issues. So, yep. And you have to think of health care, too, not just in health, but you also have to think of all the things that it impacts. So, you know, in November, you and I have talked many times about our labor force participation rate. Yep. The lowest in the country. It is, yeah. Um, and now, um, by a larger percentage of any we're not close to anybody almost in that percentage area so we kind of teetered back and forth with west virginia and they are surpassing us so what is what is causing this and health is a factor that i think plays into this um so we've got to really i mean that is the thing that as a state we have got to move that number of our labor force participation rate when you think about it right now we have half the people supporting the other half the people that's right and so effectively, that's right. Effectively, that's what it is. So we have got to move that portion of the population, a greater percentage of our population, into looking at um, that. And the thing, too, that's really interesting about this, and I think I've said this time and time again on here, is 
you know, we have these opinions about who this is not working and who's working or whatever. You know, one of the most interesting statistics to me is our single mother labor force participation rate is always 20 points higher than our general population. Interesting. So you can't really uh, uh, attribute it to that. No. They're they're staying at home, being a mother. Essentially. No, no, no. So and especially our single mothers, they are out there trying to work, trying to get better jobs, and so that's huh. stuff that we really looked at last year. When, because of that, that's stuff that we really looked at last year because we want to continue to help those that are trying to work, and so we looked at childcare um, things that businesses could do to help families with childcare. We looked at some tax credits, some things like that that we could do that with, and that's something we're going to probably continue to do because these are people actually trying to work. I think the question is, employers all over the place are looking for people. It, it just seems like, and I know we have some systems to do that, that we could improve the way in which we, we match up those that are not looking for work or not working with people that are looking for workers. And something else I've, I've thought about, Senator, is I wonder if it makes sense just to to commission somebody, some group, to go into these communities to find these people who are on the sidelines and say, how come you're not working? Well, and, you know, (laughs) one of the things that I really – I'm really pleased with this program um, and having it involved in really changing community health indicators. This is something that I think is a really good program that the state is really impacted on. And I've seen these career coaches that are now yeah. going into your high schools. CTE especially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What they're doing, though, is they're going into the high schools and they're really targeting those children who maybe wouldn't be actively going into the workforce. Yeah. And they're looking at those kids who maybe these families are not really engaged hard in the workforce. Workforce, and they're really targeting those children and making sure that those kids are actively getting into the workforce if they're not going on to higher education yeah. and making sure they get that training and stuff like that. Those the stories that you are hearing from those career coaches are phenomenal. Hmm. What you're also hearing as an ancillary effect, too, is then a, a parent may get involved more in the workforce when the child gets more involved in the workforce. So it's having a trickle effect yeah. among that family. So I do like – and you hear these anecdotally. There's not been you know quantitative research on it, but we get a lot of qualitative stories from that. And so I really – that has been a really successful program. You can see that – um, we're doing across the state. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, so I'm really excited about that. I'll tell you another thing too on that that's really kind of interesting is I was at Toyota, and I was at GE plant in my area, and did you know that they both of those national employers that their these plants in Mississippi have the largest female workforce of any of their plants in the country. I'll be darned. And so I have heard that that is not that unusual from some of our other plants in the country you know, that have darned. big national plants. So um, Didn't know that. Yeah. So it's very fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. So Toyota is putting in a child care center um, and um, to really make sure that and not just for women, but for the men as well, to sure. make sure that they have full 24-7 child care opportunities for um, their employers. And that's cheaper than them staying home. Exactly. When they have those issues. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're excited to kind of see what. It's a good benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's without government. 
Exactly. So it's the private sector saying, yeah, we think this is a reasonable benefit. We get value out of this. Exactly. And the things we're talking about really in workforce, they're not going to all come from government. We've got sure. to intrinsically change somebody's drive and motivation and ambition. And I'm hoping that churches, I'm hoping that communities will reach out and say, hey, we got to all get back to work. Yeah. Totally agree. And that's why I'm wondering if it doesn't make sense just to confront people and say, well, how come you're not working? I, <laughs> I mean, it's their jobs here. There's plenty of them here. And and uh, and it, it then makes you wonder, are you getting so many benefits that you're able to subsist just with that? Because I don't see that it amounts to a whole lot, honestly. I don't. Especially in our state. Well, and I don't. And we our state has the highest percentage of people on disability. Yeah. And so you do wonder what health care issues have related to that, how much of it is mental health. Yeah. And, um, and so those are things that we're going to have to find the answer to. Agree. It, we, I don't know the answers right now, but we've got to find the answers if we're going to raise that labor force participation rate. Yeah. And we've got to do this for us to, as a state to succeed. All right, a couple of other things that are a little outside of that realm that I think the, the people are certainly looking for is the, the ballot measure process. Yes. You got any thoughts about that? Well, I had a meeting this morning. Okay. Interesting that you say that. So yep. I had a breakfast meeting this morning with a couple other senators and um, really looking at the nuances of what we're going to propose again. We'll pr- be proposing that again this year Okay. and um, seeing where we can get, if we can get further than we did last year on it. And um, so we met this morning, and we're kind of um, going through some stuff right now, kind of making a final determination what that legislation will propose will look like. Okay. So. Uh, education freedom. I know you represent a district with uh, very high-performing uh, schools. I do. Um, public schools, uh, specifically. So any thoughts about that? You know, the speaker looks to get uh, something going, at least to, in discussion, to right. expand what we have uh, presently in the state of Mississippi. Well, and I... I you know, when everybody says these choices, education, freedom, school yeah. choice, yeah. there's a whole gamut That's right. of what that looks like in there. Um, I, um, and we've got some school choice right now we with um, some of the educational scholarships, we particularly do. those with special needs. Special needs, and dyslexia. You know, yeah. And you know I have a passion for trying to help those with special needs. Yeah. Um, I kind of, as we're having this discussion, though, I want us to all think about accountability because I'm pretty concerned right now. With our charter schools, yeah, um, we have of our charter schools only one of those is a C. The rest are D and Fs. Yeah, and if we're going to be doing that, if we're going to be spending taxpayer money, we need to see better results from those charter schools. And so, I have great concerns that, especially if a charter school is in a district where the public school is performing higher than that charter school is. Yeah. And so I've got huge concerns right now um, about what's going on with that. So I want to see better accountability, and I hope that we're doing that. But the other thing, too, is we're having all those discussions. Just like healthcare, we've discussed it's going to take a, a vast thing. We also need to really be delving into our lower-performing um, public schools. Okay. And we've had vast improvement. 91%, if you take out the charter schools, are performing at a C or better yeah. right now. I know. So, uh, I'm going to ask you a quick question because we got to go. Yeah. Are you concerned that there's maybe a little bit of uh, inflation going on with respect to those measurements? Because there's been some concerns expressed about that. I, 
I have been asking the um, Department of Education and those particular questions, okay. and they are getting back to me on that. Okay. So, Okay. Yes, and we got a new superintendent that exactly. uh, you guys will have to approve here pretty soon. Exactly, we confirm. We'll, we look forward to having those confirmation hearings. Always good to see you, Senator. Appreciate you coming on, and let's have a good session. I know we'll be talking some more. Good deal. Thank you. We're coming right back, folks. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Talks to get a border security deal may need to wait until lawmakers return to Washington in person the week of January 8th, if they can get a deal at all. It will likely take a while before any plan is ready to go to the Senate floor. At a minimum, it will take Congressional Legislative Council a week or so to actually write the very complex, intricate changes to border security and immigration policy. So that gets us toward the middle of the month until bill text is ready. All the while, interest groups and factions in Congress will inevitably start to chip away at this provision or that once details of the agreement begin to dribble out. So this could drift until mid-January or later for the Senate to begin to process this plan, even working on an expedited timetable. However, if things go swimmingly, there is no guarantee the Senate can move quickly. 60 votes are necessary to extinguish filibusters to both start the debate and close the debate on the bill. So bet on the Senate consuming at least a week and a half on this measure, even on a fast track. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. This show was previously recorded. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Pleased to welcome Representative Becky Curry into the Element Well studio. She serves uh, as a representative for District 92, which includes uh, Copiah, Lawrence, and Lincoln counties. Don't really know about committee assignments at this point, right? We start that all over again, but good to see you. Happy New Year. Welcome to the program there, Representative Curry. Thank you. Happy New Year. So good to be here. Well, and good to see you yesterday and last night. I thought it was really a good day down there at the Capitol in the House of Representatives. Those uh, those are kind of fun times with the various ceremonies. Folks uh, bring their families in for their uh, their swearing in. It was good. I enjoyed that. It was good, and it was glad to. S- I'm glad to see the new 25 members that we have in the yeah, House. Yeah, 25. And, and you know, it's uh, a few more women, which you know I like. <laughs> so um, you know. It's fun because I remember being sworn in my first time, how exciting that is, and uh, and now you get to be a, a part of the process, and, yeah. and here we go. And we're starting with a new speaker. Uh, I'm excited, you know, have no idea what committees I'm going to serve on or where, yeah. what I'm going to be doing, but um, it's just all kind of new and different this year, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, it, you could just feel it's a little different, but you would expect that because uh, no two people are the same. But I think we've been so accustomed for a long time with Speaker, a former Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, that just ha- kind of having a, a change there is uh, kind of unique. It is. Um, I really liked um, Speaker White's speech yesterday. Um, I thought he hit some of the big topics uh, without being nervous about it, and uh, he hit them head on, and and, um, I liked all of them, so um, I'm I'm looking forward to this session and this term. So he he hit on a number of the key topics that I'm sure that our legislature is going to address. Let's let's, uh, take a look at those. He talked about uh, workforce development 
uh, of course, which he felt is critical to the growing the economy of the state of Mississippi. He said that Mississippians uh, feel like that we need a, a better trained workforce to do that. He hears it, as do I, from p- prospective employers or folks looking to perhaps locate and set up shop in the state. So I think that's certainly on target. He talked about infrastructure. He said, quote, Mississippians like seeing their money go back to spending on infrastructure. This will help attract a better business environment. So, um, I mean, those are are key issues. Of course, then we got um, the subject of education and the possibility of expanding education freedom, education choice here in the state. We've got the the challenges with the health care environment, something I know that uh, you're pretty close to, is, is that's your profession. Um, of course, we got PERS, you know what I feel about that and how much I've talked about that. Uh, I call it the elephant in the room that uh, we're going to have to do something about. Um, tax reform is something else on the table. The, the ballot measure process, of course, these are kind of unfinished business uh, from prior sessions. What, what are your priorities? What did you make of the speech? What resonated with you? What are you going to focus on? Well, of course, I love health care yep. and always have, always will. And, um, you know, just him saying yesterday that he's going to make sure that providers are paid. You know, I know that uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but with our managed care, and I'm going to be really honest with you, we can't do a lot about Medicare, but it starts from Medicare to uh, Mississippi Can with Medicaid, and then you go to Blue Cross, and Blue Cross pays Mississippi uh, the lowest amount than any state in, in the nation. In the country. It's yeah. the lowest commercial reimbursement in the entire nation. And we, we're asking our hospitals to just stay open and and give care no matter what, uh, even if you're in the red. And it, it's just it's not going to continue to work, and we're going to have to do something. Yeah. And, um, you know, so insurance companies continue to get rich. I'm all for capitalism, uh, you know, that's great, but you have to take care of whom you're supposed to be taking care of. And then when you make a profit, good for you. But you can't take home billions and billions of dollars when our hospitals are struggling. Yeah. And that's where I am on that issue. Okay. Well, is there any specific legislation uh, that you, you're thinking about uh, drafting or supporting? Well, if they do Medicaid expansion, I will I will tell you, uh, you know, we haven't had a chance to really look at it. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know how it looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Medicaid expansion is there, I would uh, be willing to look at it. But I can also tell you I won't vote on a bill that doesn't say the day the federal government stops. And you and I both know that the federal government's in a mess. And I think they'll stop paying all this money to uh, each state um, that it that it ends because mm. we will not be able to afford it as a state. So I would, I would just have to say I would want that in the bill. Okay, sure. So the the amount that the state uh, has to contribute under the FMAP uh, structure, uh, you, basically, if if the state were to expand Medicaid and the federal government were to say reduce the their share, which is ninety percent exactly. for Medicaid expansion, uh, that coverage group, the state picks up ten. If that were to change. And the federal government reduced. You would, you would. I would say we yeah. have, you know, we can't afford it. Yeah, well, and you know as well that the hospitals, uh, of course, have expressed an interest in uh, financially supporting uh, a program as well. If we were well, to it, expand, it was Medicaid. approved. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, they already are one of the three companies um, that got approval, um, but political reasons yeah. that I won't get into yeah. so I don't get in trouble my first day up here. Um, they hadn't let the contract go. Yeah. I know, but you know what I'm saying is the last, the last I checked into this, the, the hospital association, of course, that's in somewhat of uh, uh, turmoil. But in general, if the state were to expand Medicaid, they were willing to pick up either either oh, most or all of the state's of portion. Of the 10%? Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I yeah, went off on I'm, a note. That's fine. I, yeah. I, I, no, I, I thought you were about. talking about no, something else. No, I was just talking about the financial aspect right. of it. So, I mean, they saw that the cost that they would bear to pick up that, to cover that 10%, would be more than offset with not having as many uninsured Absolutely. Uh, walking through their door. So That's that, right. Right, and that's a problem. But So, um, I, I'll share with you uh, something that uh, I've been working on. I've, I've announced it on the air a couple of times. Is a, is a very detailed um, uh, article, I guess, it's almost turning into a white paper because it's getting kind of long, on healthcare and, and some what I call out-of-the-box thinking of how to approach uh, the, the situation in the state of Mississippi. I think we've gotten to the point where, and get your take on this, when we talk about the challenges in, in the healthcare um, systems and just the healthcare ecosystem in the state of Mississippi, it almost always boils down to yes or no Medicaid expansion. And we get proponents that say, oh, if we just expanded Medicaid, that fixes everything. And we got folks that oppose Medicaid expansion that say, oh, no, it really won't help. So I think somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. It always is, I have to tell you. The best legislation we've ever passed was when both sides got together and we came up with something in the middle. Yeah. Uh, But, you know... We have to we have to look at something. Yeah. Um, you know, I have too many patients that can't afford insulin. Yeah. And they're going to have a major problems that we're going to be paying for forever. Yeah. So it, there's something we have to look at to get to the middle. Yeah. And then, as you know, we unfortunately have uh, an unhealthy population in our state, and uh, that just applies more pressure to uh, to the system and. And that's such a bigger problem. But we're essentially telling our hospitals and our health care providers, you got to take care of these people. Well, I can't help you if you're not getting paid for it. Right. And that's what's happening now. Yeah. So Just it, sorry. Yeah. we got to at least accept that is a problem. It is a problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a problem for a long time. It didn't sneak up on us. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, it, it sounds like uh, the speaker's aware that this is a problem in the state of Mississippi, and, and I, I get the impression that he's willing to hear all ideas. And, and let's get the brain trust together and um, start talking about the, the core problems and uh, approaches to resolve those problems. That's the impression I got from his speech yesterday. One of the things that I do like about him is he does listen. He does. I he, agree. And, you know, he doesn't just look through you. He actually hears and participates in the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, he may not agree with you, yeah. but he does hear you. Yeah, so uh, as I recall back uh, in my, my B-school days, we call that participative management is what, <laughs> it's, right. it's, what it's called. Literally. Right. So, um, and I, I get that impression as well. And I think that's a I think that is a very positive uh, aspect of his personality. I think it's going to serve as well. We got Representative Becky Curry in the Element Well studio coming right back. Stay with us.
know that nowadays most people go online to look at a business before they spend their money? And a lot of businesses are losing opportunities to get new customers if they aren't online. With the power of STMM Digital, you can reach potential customers and get more referrals and repeat business. The highly trained and trusted team at STMM Digital is ready to work with you to help your business capitalize on the power of digital marketing. Call 601-991-2305 or go to stmmdigital.com to get started today. Watch your favorite Super Talk shows in HD. Just go to supertalktv.com. Ever wonder what goes on in the studio during the shows? Now you can watch what happens in HD. Super Talk TV, streaming now on supertalktv.com. This show was previously recorded. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We're back with you in the Element Well studio. We're talking to Representative Becky Curry. All right, let's. Uh, what are your thoughts about um, education freedom? That you know, Jason seems to be. Uh, I, th- I would say much more pro something than the former speaker was. Uh, speaker of the House Philip Gunn, not a huge fan. I think that's a fair way to say it. Of uh, certainly universal school choice, he he um, was not one that I think would jump on that. Um, Jason, as you indicated, is open to talk about virtually anything and, and explore all ideas if he thinks that they would be in the best interest of, of the state and its citizens. He seems to be, I think, uh, more favorable towards that. What, what are you hearing? What do you think about uh, that area? I think that a lot of schools may hate this idea, but you got to remember something, and I hope they do. There's nothing uh, that can, is going to injure some uh, a school district, in my my opinion. Yeah. All of a sudden, a particular school you want your child to go to is not going to have, uh, you know, four new buildings right. so everybody can go there. Uh, you know, but but I think more of uh, kids with special needs. Okay. You know, if you need your child to go to Canopy, or we have a little uh, school called the Reading Nook in Brookhaven, and your child needs that special needs help, then taxpayers ought to be able to take their tax uh, So we tax have a special dollars. needs scholarship or ESA. Is that not being utilized to the extent it should? Or do we need to make some changes well, there? Well, we need to have more money there. Okay. I and, got you. Because there's so, some limits on that. That's right. That's right. You're right. And so, you know, you just want the child that needs the extra help. I'm a big uh, proponent of if a child is bullied in one school, maybe he would be successful in another okay. school. Okay. You know, but I don't believe that we're going to have this mass exodus from public schools. Right. Uh, but you know, I believe that competition always makes us a little better. Sure. And uh, you know, so I believe the tax. I also want to say this: your tax dollars need to go where you want them to. Okay. Also, you know what's best for your child. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe that a lot of private schools are going to want state money right. because guess what? That brings in the state, and they're not compelled to do so. And, and that, that's a that's a kind of a myth that a lot of people 
uh, sort of misunderstand about school choice. Private schools don't have to accept someone, even if they got money. That's right. And I've talked to a lot of private schools in my area that don't that they just don't want it. It's a capacity thing, among others. Well, that's right. Yeah, they're just not going to magically have all these open seats. Yeah. Um, but make your school good. Make your school better. I'm I'm lucky. I have great schools in my district. Uh, you know, but a lot of people don't. Right. Right. Uh, Representative Lee Yancey just texted me and said it's all clear. There's no bomb. Good to go. Oh, so good. I colleague, can go back. <laughs> yeah, we, just, we just heard that. Uh, you know, the last time I think you were on the program, I asked you a question about uh, about taxes and tax reform. I think that's something else that uh, Speaker of the House Jason White wants to address. We stopped short of full elimination of the income tax. And something I've repeated numerous times, I don't know if you know this or not, but I asked you directly, if, it, if the choice were between elimination of the income tax or elimination or, or significant reduction of the sales tax on groceries, you said, <laughs> you said that you'd vote, you said I'd vote today to eliminate or, or greatly reduce sales taxes on groceries. Absolutely, because we have a lot of people, <clears throat> and especially now, have you, you know, I don't know if you do the grocery shopping, but... Um, I do sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It is. It's expensive. It's expensive, and people's income didn't go up, but their their grocery bill sure did. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people... Um, suffer in that area. Yeah. I mean, I was behind someone the other day, and uh, they were putting groceries back. It was an elderly person, and I picked up that tab. That doesn't bother me, and, and it just hurt me that they were having to pick what they were going to put back. Man. And, uh, you know, that's sad. some of us are not going to be behind every person that has yeah. to go through that. Okay. So, you know, groceries are, are a big deal. Now, I want to eliminate the tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do in this day. I think it would bring grocery tax. You talking about or grocery sales? tax or in, just income tax? Okay, all right. I want to do. I want to do it all. Okay, uh, you know. But if I had to pick one today, it would probably be groceries. Okay. Well, do you see that uh, being a key issue that'll be deliberated? I yeah. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I know we'll be talking to you some more, and I'm sure I'll see you down at the Capitol. It looks like we got the all clear now, according okay, to Representative. Okay, now I can go to work. <laughs> you can go to work. You, got, you said you got lots of swearing in and stuff to that's, do today. we the got state a lot to leaders. do. That's yeah. right. So. All right. Always good to see you. Appreciate you coming in. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Representative Becky Curry has been our guest here on Middays. We're in the Element Well studio, coming right back. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome into Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Now, once again, I am not Gerard Gibbert. I'm Will East, who you hear on the show from time to time. Uh, Gerard is under the weather. Gerard is not feeling well, so what we're doing, uh, and you know that a lot of people right now are not feeling well. You probably know someone in your life that is not feeling well right now. It seems to be going around for whatever reason. So, Gerard, um, not able to make a go of it today, so what we're doing is we're bringing you some interviews and stories from earlier this week as we kicked off the new legislative session here in the state, and hopefully Gerard will be back 
on Monday. So we welcome to the program now Representative Stacy Hobgood Wilkes. She represents District 108, which incorporates Pearl River County. Is it just one county? One county. One county. One okay. great county. And in the past, you served as the, our notes say, the vice chair of the House Constitution Committee. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. We don't know what's going to happen this year yet, do we? We don't know. (laughs) All right, so we were just talking about the bomb threat. You just shared that uh, all clear. All clear. Second second bomb threat this year, this session, and um, but all clear. We didn't expect that to kick the year off. (laughs) Not at all. We were expecting a lot of things, but that was not one of them. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, uh, gaveling in today? Yes, 2 o'clock, and um, they will um, actually swear in the statewide officials today. Okay. At 2. That was supposed to happen yesterday, I thought. Or did no, we do? Today. Okay. It's been yeah, today. All been right. today. My uh, misunderstanding yep. there. Yes. Okay. As far as well, I know, it's today. Yeah. Uh, so when do you think we'll get committee chairs? I think in the past I've seen it's like two weeks before the committee meetings start to convene. So I think either – it's usually uh, um, on a Friday, but I think it'll be either next Friday or the following Friday. That's kind of what I'm thinking. You hearing anything? Any buzz you can share with us on that? Not really. I mean, <laughs> you hear a lot of things, but the accuracy of that, you know, is not really worth repeating. Um, the speaker's held that pretty close to his chest, which uh, is very understandable. Yeah, and sure. so um, um, any believable stuff out there, no, nothing, to, nothing really to report. It's kind of um, – no one knows. Right. And, and so the members are asked, are they not, yes. to sort of indicate their preferences? Yes, they are. And I believe um, new members are guaranteed their top several, and then the ones with other seniority, they're guaranteed like a few more okay. of your picks. Um, but I think we picked 10, 10 committees, and doesn't guarantee anything. I think you're guaranteed, like I said, a couple. But other than that, they put you where they feel that, that they need you. Okay. Do you think the number of committees is too many, not enough, just right. Mm, probably a little many, but yeah. um, the Senate's where yeah. I have a bigger issue with that. When we have more committees than we have members, yeah, yeah, just because of the the composition in terms yeah. of number of members, yeah. fifty-two members, and I think last time I looked at it, right, right now we had more committees than we had members, like fifty-six or something like that last year. Yeah. Well, um, but as you know, as long as they're sending um, legitimate bills and the committees are working, then yeah. I have no problem with it. So okay. I know we're looking at a couple of new committees for the House, which um, okay. I think are going to be you know good and effective. So interesting. Yep. Well, what are you going to be working on? What are your priorities? Let's talk about that. Well, one of the big things that I'm working on right now is EMS. Um, EMS is in a uh, national crisis, and it really hasn't been touched since it was um, formed, like yeah. 50 or 60 years ago. And so the governor created a task force, and um, myself and Senator Branning are the two legislators um, on that task force. And um, it's a task force full of people from that field of, of all the different se- sectors. And... Um, it's really been good because we are having problem, or they are having problems with recruitment, hmm. um, with um, retention and reimbursements. So there's a lot that has to be done there because so many people think when you call, you know, the EMS, you call an ambulance, you get a ride to the hospital. Yeah. But they have so many life-saving skills on there to save lives, and they okay. do so much more. So there's a lot that we have to do to keep that in place so that it's um, it's there when we need it to protect and serve the people. And that's managed, is it not, by the Department of Health? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. So is that typically 
uh, from a committee perspective, is that the purview of the health committee? Usually legislation pertaining to that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it should go to the health committee, but it's it's not it's not just Mississippi. It is um, nationwide, and everyone's you know really looking at looking at it and looking at reforms. But so many people too, they don't go into um, to that because there's not a career path. Yeah. So we're looking at career paths and things. And um, I had a bill a few years ago where it let um, paramedics work as a paramedic off of an ambulance because prior to that you couldn't. If you were a paramedic, really the only place you could work was an, on an ambulance. Okay. So now you can work in the private sector at Ingalls or you know somewhere else that might want a paramedic that would fit that need more so than a nurse or someone like that. So okay. we're moving in the right direction, but there's so much to be done in such a short period of time because of the need and the shortage. So um, that's why the governor created that task force and um, decided gotcha. to work on some legislation stuff for that this session. Okay, that's interesting. Well, that we'll be watching that. Uh, some of the, the key issues that, of course, kind of find their way to the top. We hear a lot. You probably do from your constituents. So one is the ballot initiative process. Yes. That um, a lot of folks have said we need to restore that. I think that's the common view of, the, of certainly the public, the citizens of the mm-hmm. state. We've had two years, hadn't been able to get that done. Where, what do you think about that this year? I'm not sure. I haven't heard any, you know, talks on the numbers because that seems to be the problem on, you know, coming to an agreement on something. Yeah. Um, I do think um, the people need a voice, um, which they do have a voice as a legislator, you know, too, in their seats. But the people do have a right and have a voice. But you just have to be careful because I, I truly believe that um, there was a lot of misinformation and things that went out with the uh, marijuana um whole thing with that on the ballot and when you can put in a couple million dollars and buy your way into the constitution that's a problem so i think one of the things which i'm good with i'm I'm not okay with it going back into the constitution but if we do it legislatively where it can be changed if there's problems and two a big problem with it when it went in the constitution so many other states saw miss um saw unintended consequences so as they went through there and saw oh this didn't work you can't just go in there and change it so legislatively is the way to go on that the numbers i'm not sure how to make it fair but you know i think it has to be something that Keeps you from buying your way in, but also the people have representation. Okay. Yeah, so in the past, the, that's been the sticking point, the number of signatures yes. where the, the House has had a lower threshold, keeping the existing threshold. Right. And the Senate wanted more. Right. So that we, we got to maybe find something in between something that. Something in between. And I really haven't heard any talks on it. I know it's still an issue, still being talked about, but what those numbers are, I okay. have not heard. I got you. Uh, what about uh, continuing to work on tax reform? You know, we got uh, pretty significant uh, legislation done there, re- eliminating the 4% bracket, reducing the 5 down to 4 over three years. Talk about that. And then, of course, possibly addressing the uh, the 7% uh, sales tax on groceries. Where where do you come down on that? Yeah, that's one of the um, highest I think percentages in the nation. So um, at the state level, it is. at the state level, yes. Yeah. So we definitely need to do that because I think that um, eliminating that grocery tax or way reducing it that helps everyone. It helps you know your um, retired people on a fixed income that really don't see a benefit from the um, uh, removing the income tax. Um, poor families, us, everybody that goes, you know, and shops for groceries, it helps everyone. Um, the more money we put in our pocket and decide what to do, the better off we are. Okay. I mean, I work for the government, but we, you know, we, we're better decisions with our money, make better decisions with our money than the government does. And so, um, and I think if we can, um, eliminate the income tax or reduce it, I mean, it's going to bring in more businesses to Mississippi. Yeah. But we do have to have triggers and we do have to do it responsibly. Okay. 
So speaking of which, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read the article that I wrote about PERS. I've, I've, I've noted that on the program, that that's, I call it the elephant in the room. It's a big old yeah. problem that nobody has really wanted to address, certainly during an election year. Um, the speaker knows this is something that we, we have to take up. What, what are you hearing? What, what do you, how do you feel about that? Um, we are going to have to address it. Yeah. And while everyone hates to have to do that, you know, leadership calls on unpopular decisions sometimes. You know, you have to make tough decisions. Um, it's hard because I don't believe in breaking contracts that you have with someone. You right. know, someone's paid in all this time and guaranteed something. And how do you go and just say, whoops, sorry. You know, if I tell you I'm going to pay you $50 and you come to mow my yard and you come mow my yard and then you mow it. And I was like, well, I'm just going to give you 25 So I don't believe in changing that contract. But at the same time, we have to figure out a way for future people coming in and also what we can do right now to make it sustainable. Otherwise, it's not going to be there. Right. I mean, it's really in a critical state and something's really going to have to be done. So, I mean, as it stands right now, as you probably know, we, we're scheduled to see the employer rate tick up. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the, the latest proposal by the PERS board is let's do it 2% per year for the next five years till we get to the, what the actuaries say it needs to be. That's a 10% increase mm-hmm. in employer expenses on their yep. payroll, which is significantly affects, uh, mostly affects, of course, School districts, municipalities, and counties. It's right. a big old problem it's, for them. Exactly. They all it's all contra- it all trickles down. So finding that sweet spot. Yeah. Um, you know, who it you know, how you can less affect, you know, someone is, is gonna be very tough, but it has to be done. Okay. Well that's good Unfortunately. here. If you can hang around, we keep talking and go sure. through some other issues. Love all to. Right. We got Representative Stacy Hopgood Wilkes in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and like a lot of folks this time of year, Gerard has come down with a bit of a cold, so he can't do the show today. You'll hear conversations from legislators that we've had this week, and Gerard will be back on Monday. We are back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Stacy Hobgood Wilkes, represents District 108, which covers Pearl River County. Does somebody else have a part of Pearl River County, or do you have the whole county? Um, Representative Jansen Owen has um, the north end of the county, okay. and uh, Representative Ladner has um, a piece of it. Too. Okay. Uh, all right, so we've, we've talked about PERS. We talked about the ballot initiative. Uh, what, what about, talked a little bit about tax reform. Uh, I think health care is something else that the speaker certainly wants to address. Where do you see that going at this point? Um, you're talking about on the Medicaid expansion? Well, I mean, that's one idea, but just yeah. the, the, our hospitals, uh, many of them, even those in the – I pointed this out – even those in the urban areas, we typically focus on the rural hospitals is losing money, but unfortunately – we have hospitals in our most populated areas, which are bleeding as well financially. Um, no pun intended mm-hmm. there. 
But uh, and we have a huge uninsured population as well, one of the highest in the country, he's third or fourth highest in the country. And so the speaker, he's indicated, I heard him this morning say he wants to address that. I mean, Medicaid expansion seems to always be what folks point to on both sides. We need to do Medicaid expansion to solve this problem. No Medicaid expansion won't solve that problem or won't won't actually fix anything. But I think we got to consider alternatives and, and maybe uh, create a brain trust that can yeah. address this issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not for um, expanding Medicaid. I think um, I just don't think it's a good thing when you add more people um, to the Medicaid role. They come off the private sector, and that increases premiums in the private sector. Um, and also, the governor, um, with the um, negotiations that he made and got um, the higher reimbursement rate, yeah. um, I'm hearing from some hospitals that where they were like in the hole, like they're like millions up now because of that. Yeah. And uh, we put a big infusion into our hospitals last session. Yep. So um, hopefully, you know, over time and um, proper management of these hospitals, um, that things will start turning around. Okay. Is there work to be done still? Absolutely. But um, my big thing is we've pumped all that money into the hospitals and done that and fixed all that. But if we don't pump some money into EMS and work on these things that I was speaking to you earlier, we're going to have a big situation just like we did with our um, hospitals hmm. with the EMS. I mean, okay. you're going to call an ambulance and there's not going to be one to – one available. So we need to be looking at pumping money into um, into that as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, so yeah, that's right. The governor, of course, made a request to CMS to enhance the payments to base Medicaid, mm-hmm. some $700 million a year. Um, when you net it out, it comes out to a little under $600 million a year because you've got the loss of some of the disproportionate share payments and other expenses there. And that was done without any cost to the state um, because uh, – the uh, the hospital stepped up and said we'll cover the state's portion of that essentially. Yes. So, do you have any thoughts about how we should handle the extension of care to those that that don't have insurance and frankly can't afford it? I mean, I'm a person making fifteen thousand dollars a year. I'm an adult. I make minimum wage. We have a lot of that in our yeah, state. We They're did. working. We did have a lot. Too many, honestly, and they they. Get sick. They contract some sort of uh, serious medical issue that could cost a whole bunch of money, and the hospitals end up absorbing that cost now. Right. Is what happens. You, you have some thoughts about how we should handle it? I really don't, but I do know, like, um, for instance, when we were talking about the um, EMS things earlier, so um, telemedicine and different things like that, I think, can help a lot and reduce, like, hospital stays. I know, like, right now, if you call an ambulance and they come out and you had, a, like, your blood sugar dropped or something and they look at you, check you out, and don't. Uh, take you to the hospital, they don't get compensated for that care that they came out and, and gave you. Hmm. So I'm thinking on some things like that. If you can um, provide telemedicine to some people, um, that keeps people out of the ERs, that keeps expenses down for hospitals where they're losing money in that. Um, all the other things, I'm not um, in the medical field. I'm not really sure okay. how to fix that, to be honest. I'm really not. But I'm like you. I mean, we. Um, we need to take care of people, not only as government, but as Christians, and make sure that they have, you know, food and the care that they need. It's our responsibility, I believe. Yeah. So for the for those that are not able to take care of themselves, okay. what that solution is, I don't know. But um, I think we definitely need to, you know, to look at it and talk about it and see what options are out there and maybe what other states um, similar to ours are doing successfully. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. What about um, another uh, something else that the speaker has indicated he has an interest in addressing is uh, school choice, education freedom. Where do you stand on that? I support school choice, okay. but I also think that the devil's in the details, and um, I don't want it 
to be where it's only for a few people. But at the same time, I know you can't just overload the system and, and um, let everybody in at one time. You have a bunch of school districts that are doing really well. So I think the schools have some say, need a say in, you know, um, turning someone down or you yeah. know, having criteria and it just has to be done right. Again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Look at other states that are doing really well with it and uh, model after them and make the changes based on that that we need to. But I definitely support school choice. That's true. We have some good templates for that. We do. And, you don't need um, to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I, I totally but agree you can't, with you. But it can't just be a free-for-all and open up the door, especially starting out. And you gotta, you know, got to do it carefully to not um, set up schools right now that are really good and set them up for failure. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree, and and I think there, there are a lot of uh, fears that are espoused by mm-hmm. opponents of school mm-hmm. choice that I think are a bit um, out of bounds, that aren't, aren't actually accurate. And I, I've just felt like that we need to address those objections and get those we who do. oppose it, especially in the legislature, because you know we, our problem, we know most Democrats don't support this. Our problem is uh, is with the Republicans, with our own our own caucus, right. where we've got kind of split views on this. Right. And, and like you said, a lot of it is just um, myths and untruths and things like that. So um, I think that we need to really have you know some hearings or have some things where um, where it all comes out and it's discussed. Um, I want to vote for the bill. Can I say I'll 100% vote for it? I can't say that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. But I do support school choice, and hopefully it'll be done right where I can support it. But, but knowledge is powerful, and I think there's um, just like with um, – that uh, EMS uh, corrections, uh, so many different um, things. That the healthcare, I'm not as you know familiar with some of that as I should be on the hospital situations. So much of that, we just need more information to be able to make these decisions. Yeah. So I think the more information we can get on it, I think probably the more support um, that it would find. I, I agree with you that uh, we should. I, I would like to see the legislature see how you feel about this to bring in more subject matter experts and people that are actually directly affected by lots of this policy. I know we do that to some extent. I think we could do a better job. I think we could invite more people from the field to come in and uh, and educate. And that's where your knowledge is. My background is insurance and also public relations. Um, so I, all the time, when I'm working on legislation or know something's coming up in fields that I'm not, because I can't be an expert in all these you know, yeah. things, sure. I contact people back home, or even if it's not from back home, some contact that I've made. And that's what I love, networking up here, meeting different yeah. people, and you have resources. And I contact people that know a lot more than me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And get information, or where can I go to find more resources to study this? So you're exactly right. Right. Yeah. It's hard to make decisions on something that you don't know anything about. I agree. And it also seems like, uh, and get your take on this, there's a bit of a, uh, just a, a difference, a contrast in the complexion of the House and the Senate. Yes. <laughs> without, without asking you to, to, yeah. to say too much about that, but uh, we're, we're, we still have Republican supermajorities in both chambers, and then, of course, we have a Republican governor. It's amazing how much we don't agree on and where we don't align between the two chambers. And I think a lot of that, too, goes back to what you just said and knowledge and what's presented in the bills yeah. and um, how much you know about them. Yeah. Um, from one of the things that the speaker um, talked about, we're going to have a lot of discussion more on different legislation. Um, you know, And so I think that discussing these bills more and under different leadership, um, Philip Gunn did a great job, but I think it's just – I think it's going to be a different um, – kind of form of leadership. Um, we're all excited, but I think um, we're hoping that we can come more together um, as Republicans and work 
work more together yeah. and get things done. Do you see the uh, the dynamic a little different to the extent you want to comment uh, with respect to the lieutenant governor and speaker Jason White relative to the lieutenant governor and speaker Philip Gunn? Do you think that that relationship will change any? I think they no no secret they had some com- conflicts you know on, on policy positions here and there. Um, I, I think that. Um, I think they will both look at the bigger picture and you know there's there's legislators that I don't necessarily agree with on policy sure. but we still like each other and we're still yeah, friends and sure. you may disagree on one thing but later you're going to you might work with them on something else and I think that's the same way it's going to be with our speaker and lieutenant governor that they're going to um, hopefully compromise and work well where they can so that we can do what's best for Mississippi. Okay. Well, we certainly look forward to uh, getting to the meat of the session, which Absolutely. will be coming up pretty soon. And we appreciate you coming in, Representative Stacy Hobgood Wilts. Thanks for having me. Yep, we're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. This show was previously recorded. Watch your favorite Super Talk shows in HD. Just go to supertalktv.com. Ever wonder what goes on in the studio during the shows? Now you can watch what happens in HD. Super Talk TV, streaming now on supertalktv.com. We are back in the Element Well studio. We thank you for joining us today. So that was a good discussion with Representative uh, Stacy Hobgood-Wilkes. And, of course, we've got Tyler McCaw, the senator from Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott Counties over there in east-central Mississippi, coming on at 12.05. Paula Meridian says, a lot of us self-employed are uninsured. In my opinion, if you personally call an ambulance, they need to get paid. So here's the question, Paul, for a person who doesn't have that kind of money. There are a lot of those in our state. Uh, The services provided by an ambulance to some people would be a significant amount of their annual income for one ride. Not Not to pile on and layer on the cost of the care services that they might receive. The question is, how do we deal with that? Do we tell the ambulance, hey, look, can you pay? Because if you can't, I'm not coming. You just got to die. How do we deal with this? I mean, that that's the reality of the problem. And that's not suggesting Medicaid is the solution to that. I don't think that. All I'm saying is we have a lot of people in our state, in our country, that simply don't have the income to afford comprehensive insurance. 
And if they don't have insurance, they certainly can't afford services for health care out of pocket. So how do we deal with that? And I'm talking about people who are working. Now, it's, it's different when you get into those who aren't working. That's, that's a completely different analysis. So, but that's the question. How, how do we address this? And uh, that's what I attempt to do in my article that I should have up early next week. And I'll certainly let everybody know. It's just some kind of out-of-the-box thinking on how to achieve what is the ultimate goal of universal coverage. Let's put it this way. The ultimate goal is that health care providers get paid for what they do. That would drive the cost down for everybody. Because right now, we're paying for those who aren't paying. People who are paying for health care, either in the form of insurance or directly out-of-pocket costs, they're absorbing the cost of the people who are receiving care that aren't paying. And even that doesn't work, which is a big problem. And isn't it also accurate to say that though we didn't expand Medicaid, we have it in this state to add the coverage group, we did boost Medicaid reimbursement with the waiver that uh, the state just received from CMS that the governor proposed. I think it was a good idea. I mean, it was available, and CMS saw fit to approve it. So, and it doesn't cost the state anything. It, it, the hospitals, of course, are covering the state's portion in, under our state FMAP, the federal matching aspect of our base Medicaid. And this The state uh, picks up about 22%. The federal government picks up about 78%. That's based on the household incomes in a state. Because ours is the lowest in the nation, we get the highest federal support in terms of the FMAP in the state. It's approaching $6 billion a year from the federal government to cover the Medicaid program. The state's portion is just under a billion. That's without expanding Medicaid. That's just out without it. Paula Meridian says, what if we had a system where you paid your monthly payments directly to your primary care doctor in the local hospital of your choice? Well, here's the deal. There are such concierge services available for that, Paul. They're not going to be everywhere. That's a problem. It's impossible to make that ubiquitous. And they're very limited in what they cover. And if you paid, um, and it's mainly geared for those who just need some sort of very minor, basic, elementary, primary care, which is important because you can avoid lots of long-term problems if you can you can catch disease through primary care and wellness visits and examinations. But to hospitals, no, that's not possible. You might as well have insurance. They can't make the ends meet now with people paying exorbitant prices for insurance. That's even with everybody had commercial insurance. The one I looked at that kind of shocked me not too long ago was uh, Gulfport Memorial. Most, of, If you look at what's called their payer mix, most of their patients were uh, it's about, about uh, half commercial payers and then 40% or so Medicare, 8%, 10% or so Medicaid. Lost $60 million on $400 million of revenue. And that's with most of, and a very small uninsured 
in their patient census. That's mostly getting reimbursed from private insurers. Commercial coverage. It, it's, a, it's a difficult model. you got folks like the Cleveland Clinic, the uh, very prominent health care institution, lost a billion dollars last year. And, and we certainly could talk about they need to rejigger, re-engineer these, uh, uh, no doubt, our hospital facilities, they're, they're a bit old, they're aged, they're not designed for modern medicine, and that results in inefficiencies. There's no doubt about that. But there ain't no about amount of I- improving efficiency that can offset free. Nobody builds that into their business model. If you look at retail, as an example, you guys know this, the smashing grabs, retail theft, off the chart. What's happening? Well, many of those retailers closing in areas they just they can't deal with it anymore. I mean, they're losing so much money to theft. It's called shrinkage, and that, that of course, includes theft. It includes... Uh, sometimes that's employee theft as well. It's not always external. But so what do they do? Well, they raise their prices to account for the theft. We're all paying for that. So it's another situation where the honest paying people are paying for those who don't pay. In this case, who steal. I'm not saying that a person that receives medical services and doesn't pay, I'm not suggesting they're stealing. But in But in essence... Somebody's got to absorb that cost. And who absorbs it are the people who are paying. That's built into the model. I saw the well, other I mean, day. if you walked into a barber shop and they cut your hair and you ran off without paying, that would be stealing. I would agree. But the difference is... If you go to an oil change place and they change your oil and then you drive off without paying, that's stealing. I agree. But here's what the difference is. the In general, the barber shop, the oil change service... They're fully expecting to get paid. In the case of hospitals, they know. I mean, most of the time, they know who they're dealing with. Yeah, we're eating this one. And they don't stop, as I've said before, and say, hey, you got any money? When they show up and they say, I don't have any insurance, they know. They're absorbing. Because that's one of the first things you're going to do. But in an acute situation, you don't even do that. You just react. You show up, you know this, you show up to the hospital and say, I'm having chest pains, boom, you go to the top of the line, you're going to get treatment. They're going to worry later as to whether or not you're going to pay. That, that comes after the fact, especially if you're riding on an ambulance and you're whisked into the ER. It, it's just, it's a different environment from a business perspective than any other. And of course, as we talked about before, the EMTALA law, passed under Ronald Reagan in 1986, which compels ERs to stabilize patients as a condition of participating in Medicare, essentially means we don't care if you get paid or not. You're going to go take care of these people. Now, what they do is you get some payments through the Medicaid program, actually, these DSH payments, to help offset some of those costs, it's just federal money they send to you when you file your reports and it shows all your undercompensated and uncompensated services, the value of that. And there are prescribed formats that 
are submitted and they get audited and the whole bit, and they send you money to help with that. But it don't come close to covering the full boat. That's where it gets complicated. If they have no intention to pay for treatment, it's stealing. Thomas, when, they, when they're having a heart attack, they're not thinking about that. If a person that makes $15,000 a year is told, by the way, for you to live, you need a hundred grand. If they said, I can't pay that, that's the dilemma. Then what happens? I mean, right now, you got a little experience working in health care. Do you know of any providers that'll say, I'm sorry, you got to die? None. Zero. They know it. And they, they have to figure that into their business model. And I just submit that there's no amount of re-engineering and reorganization and repurposing and all that sort of stuff that could ever offset free. And that's what we're dealing with, especially in the state of Mississippi. Now, how we address that, that's a much bigger issue than just Medicaid. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. That's on the all-hit request line there. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Little Van Halen would jump. So on the ceasefire text line, can you speak about Blue Cross Blue Shield? Um, the question was, did they ever get things settled in Mississippi? That had to do with their dispute with University Medical Center. And yes, they did. That has been resolved. I can't remember when exactly it was, Rhino. Seems like it's been a year and a half or so, somewhere in that range. But yeah, they, it was uh, December of 2022, I want to say, was when it was finalized. Right. The CEO of North Mississippi Medical Center makes $1.8 million, might be a problem. I'm always shocked at how people tend to focus on CEO pay. Because the question is, okay, let's suppose they brought in a CEO that made half that much. Would the organization perform worse? Lose more money? I mean, it's... So that's it. I've seen this. You've probably seen this, this uh, social media post going around about the pay to the CEO of uh, is it the ASCPA? I think I don't know if you've seen that or not. And and people are blasting that person because of their pay. And things are relative. So if you had, if you paid less, you're likely to get a far less qualified person who would not be nearly as competent and not perform nearly as well at managing the organization. What does that cost? I submit that, assuming the board here that runs that hospital is competent and diligent in their compensation practices, including of the C-suite, that, okay, if you hired a a lower-cost person, you're going to end up with a less competent person that could cause a lot more problems. 
So you have to believe that, hey, I pay more money, I get a more competent person who performs better, produces better for the organization. You could end up with a person that makes half that much that literally torpedoes the whole place because they're not competent. I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know the market for those positions. But the market's the only fair arbiter of compensation, of pricing, of wages. The only fair. And this, this I don't, it's not a meme, I guess, but it's just a, it's a statement uh, about the, the amount the president of the ASPCA makes. But it's like a $300 million organization or some huge deal like that. Um, so, and if you said, okay, let's take, let's take 500000 away from the CEO, I mean, that, that's not squat in the scheme of things. We just shared with you that, for example, Gulfport Memorial, that's a $450 million outfit. Okay, we're going to cut the CEO pay by five hundred grand. Woohoo! You lost $40 million. It's, it's the same thing that we get from the Democrats with respect to taxes and all their economic nonsense. Just math doesn't add up. That's just fundamental. Blue Cross, by the way, revenue last year. And I'm not defending Blue Cross. I'm just sharing the facts here. $880 million, of which, according to their audits, 1.5% fell to the bottom line. That's not a lot. 1.4, pardon me. That's terrible. 1.4%. Contrast that to any other industry. Any. Uh, 87.7% of what they take, take in goes to claims. By law, it has to be 80. If it doesn't at least equal 80, they have to send rebates. Billions and billions of dollars of rebates have been issued by health insurers in this company, be, country because they didn't achieve the required, it's called the medical loss ratio, the MLR. That, by the way, from the Affordable Care Act. You know you can only deduct $500,000 for tax purposes of CEO pay in the healthcare industry? See, I submit that government intrusion into the industry is causing this problem. Guess what these insurers have been doing to offset uh, the terrible performance in the in selling insurance in the insurance line of their business, buying the pharmacy benefit managers. You've seen that because that's not subject to the medical loss ratio. Guess what drove that? This medical loss ratio. So the government says we're limiting your profit, insurers. You got to pay eighty percent out claims, no matter how efficient you are. And they said, well, okay. We'll just go buy some pharmacy benefit managers, and we'll make all our money over there. That's the old, what do they call it, right? Oh, the unintended consequences. Looks great on paper. We'll get those insurers. You're going to pay out everything you, you take in to providers, except they say, oh, here's a business over here we can get into. And you know what they do? They boost the pricing over there, and they've got that thing, as you know, so convoluted. Nobody figured out the, the PBM environment. Well, it's time for a break right now. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. When we return, Tyler McCann, the Mississippi Senator from District 31. Stay with us.
This show was previously recorded. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and like a lot of folks this time of year, Gerard has come down with a bit of a cold, so he can't do the show today. You'll hear conversations from legislators that we've had this week, and Gerard will be back on Monday. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. I will say that I am enjoying the discussion with all the legislators, and now we bring in Senator Tyler McCon, represents District 31, which includes Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott counties. Uh, in the past, you've served as the chair of the Senate Forestry Committee and vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Senator McCon, good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming in. Good afternoon, Gerard. You know, first off, I've got to do this before Rankin County gets me. You know, I picked up a little bit of Rankin County now, so I want to go ahead and put that back in. Okay. We've got them on the list, too, now for District 31, but we're so happy to be here today. Appreciate you making that clarification for us. I forgot that we've had a little bit of changing in that. Uh, and, of course, I've always enjoyed uh, talking to you, Senator. I was thinking about this earlier when I saw you on the schedule, whenever we do the remote at the Loggers Association. That's right. That's um, right. That's fascinating. Uh, the first time I did that a couple of years ago. All that sophisticated equipment is incredible, isn't it? And then I mean, that's a, a every other year event, and it's yeah. just amazing the number of people that come in here and the fact that forestry in general is now such a, a high-tech industry. Unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, it's just like in ag and anything else. We've continued to evolve that equipment where you can go in there with GPS and you can specifically determine where you're at. Uh, and just the fact that we've got such more uh, more proficient equipment. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. just it's amazing. But, you you know, in general, we've got to do that. If we're going to continue to move the industry forward, we've got to keep going forward with, with making sure that we're utilizing all the fuel and we're not wasting anything, or we're utilizing all of the talent we've got there. We're not wasting anything because, unfortunately, uh, you know, our landowners are still hurting on selling their timber. Yeah. You know, when you climb in the cabs of one of those big machines, and you look at that all-glass screen in front of you, you just about got to have a degree in computer science to operate these machines these well, days. I tell you, it, it is amazing. If you've never been in one now, it, it's it's totally different from taking that chainsaw out there and putting yeah. them on a bob truck and taking them to the mill now. No doubt. And, um, and, the, and the pay is very good in that industry as well. I, you know, I've, I've visited a lot of mills. Since, uh, since I was appointed, one of the things I wanted to do was go and visit our mills, visit with our landowners, go to the associations and find out exactly what we've got going on and what we need to do uh, for the industry. Uh, one of the things that amazed me was going to these mills and finding out these people working in these mills. Some of these mills are fully air-conditioned now, yeah. which is, you know, it's great. And in Mississippi heat, if you've never been in a timber mill or Ooh. a paper mill in the Mississippi heat in July, then, then you've not experienced heat like those Brutal. guys have. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That All, all of that has uh, certainly evolved quite a bit. Okay, so we're just getting underway down there at the Capitol. Uh, it's, uh, I said earlier, another day, another bomb threat. Uh, gosh, that's crazy. I, I just, I'll, I'll apologize in advance. I have referred to whomever uh, these these malcontents are as idiots. <laughs> I just will go ahead and say that. That's a little out of my character, but I, I've, I've moved to say that. This is ridiculous, and I hope we've seen the end of this, and then we get down to business. 
I, I hope we have too. And Gerard, you've always spoken the truth, so I don't think you're you're out of line with that <laughs> statement right now. Uh, <laughs> but what I'll say is, I, I'm thankful that we we did one thing over the past few years, and that's move forward our capital complex district yeah. to get our capital police out there to protect the people that are going in Good and point. out of that capital and out of all of our buildings. Good point. So the response we're getting, I'm, I'm very impressed with. Uh, Commissioner Tyndall's been been really good about providing the resources for that. He has. I, I agree. And uh, so I, th- I think that was a positive move on the part of our legislature. It's You know, it's a bit sad that it was necessary, but it was necessary. It, it was necessary. You know, the capital, that is our capital. Whether you, where, where you're at in Mississippi, that is your capital. And you want to know that you can come to your capital, you can view your capital, you can see your legislators, and you can know that you're safe there. Totally and that's agree. something I feel like we've done a great job of moving forward. I don't think we're totally there yet, but yeah. I think we're getting there. I agree. So I uh, appreciate you pointing that out. Okay, so we, uh, we're we scheduled, I guess, to start appointing committee chair. When do you expect that to happen? What's the lieutenant governor said? Anything? You know, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I would love to know that we got them maybe tomorrow, but I, I have a feeling we're probably about a week out before seeing okay. that. Uh, okay. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of turnover, though, yeah. uh, in the body. Which seven is new senators, that's seven, right. Yeah. Seven new senators, yeah. and, and I'm fortunate to have one with me today just visiting and, and sitting in with us. Uh, Senator Rhodes from over at Rankin County is here yeah. with me, another good Brian ag Rose, guy yeah. with us. Yeah. Uh, so so we're excited to have those people in, and, and, and I tell you, they're going to be a good class. Yeah. Just, just talking to right. them and knowing that, uh, but bringing those senators in and knowing that they're in for the best interest of Mississippi. I think we've got our team together, Gerard. In general, our state and our capital has the team together to move forward and take a comprehensive look at what we need to do for the state of Mississippi for the next four years. Okay. And from that point forward, if you look at your new senators, your new representatives, we're in a second term governor. We've got some great statewides. I think we're headed in the right direction. And I'm anxious to see what we can do. Right. Well, I I certainly I'm with you on the optimism. I appreciate that. And I I've always believed that if you want good things to happen, you have to think about good things. You have to envision those things. You know, I used to coach youth baseball for many years. I'd always tell the batters, you want to visualize the ball coming off your bat going into the gaps, gap to gap. That's what I tell them when they're at the plate. Think gap to gap. And, it, and you can apply that same logic, I think, to what we're trying to do here in the, in the state. We've got to believe that, that there's nothing we can't achieve on a positive basis and not just bury our head in the sand and say, oh, no, we can't do that. I agree. You know, people say, well, this is your first year in a term. Y'all aren't going to do anything, are you? And I beg to differ. I think we've got some great issues that we need to be dealing with. Uh, you know, we're we're not there yet. We've yeah. done some great things over the last four years, and I appreciate the leadership of both uh, both houses to yeah. move that forward. Uh, but I'm anxious to see what we do this year. We okay. get those uh, committee chairs in there. I think we're going to see some movement on some some big issues. What are you prioritizing, Senator? Uh, you know, I, I will always prioritize um, uh, my ag and forestry issues that are out there. So, so we're always going to be looking at this year the foreign ownership, to be honest with you. It's okay. going to be one of the biggest things that we look at. Where do you stand on that? Uh, I stand that we're, we're headed in the right direction. You know, it's inherently important for us to move forward uh, assessing the situations that threaten the health, safety, and welfare of our people. Yeah. You know, both domestic and abroad, we, we're here to assess those threats. Uh, I think you're going to see, uh, coming from the commission or, or the committee that was put together, the study committee, uh, and from their report, uh, I think you're going to see some good legislation come forward okay. uh, to make sure that we balance the act of protecting our citizens and making sure that we don't destroy uh, development in the state of Mississippi. Key word being balance. Balance. And, and, and we really need to think about that in all of our lawmaking, honestly. I, and, I uh, agree. 
Uh, you know, and over the past three months, I, I've been very fortunate to work with with our partners, whether it yep. be you know the farm bureaus or the forestry associations or, or whomever it may be, yep. uh, to keep working on that. And I think you're you're going to see a very effective product come out of that from all of the partners getting together. Okay, sounds good. Um, some of the issues, of course, that kind of left over from from prior um, sessions and certainly the prior term, uh, I'd I'd say tax reform is one of those. We we of course took a big cut at the income tax uh, in the state of Mississippi. We certainly welcome that. Uh, I think uh, certainly the Speaker and the Governor has made it clear that's his highest priority is to fully eliminate the income tax. Do you see any movement on just further tax reforms in the coming session? You know, I think you're going to see the Senate back up and say, hey, so what's the effect now? You know, we're seeing a change to people's income. With interest rates running up and inflation running amok from the federal level, you know, on a state level, we've got to back up and say, hey, guys, we've got to do something about that as best we can. Yeah. I understand that uh, it's a federal issue that we're going to have a hard time reigning in on a state level, uh, but we do have to look and see where we're at from what we did. And, you know, we've got record uh, cuts from the past, and I don't disagree with moving forward. As long as we don't put it back on the landowner that's out there, your counties have got to be able to fund themselves yeah. uh, somehow. And I, I would hate to go up on our property taxes. We're already seeing property tax increases over the last year. And there's no doubt that there are a lot of folks out there that fear that, and, uh, and they've expressed... Um, opposition to any sort of increases right. in the property tax. Of course, that would primarily come in if, for some reason, the state cut its revenue to the point where uh, its contribution to education uh, would have That's to be right. reduced, and which would put more of the responsibility on the districts, the counties, essentially. That's, right. That's where we'd see likely you know, and, uh, and there's and the, infrastructure as well. The unfunded mandates that we really like to do as a legislature, send it back down to the county and city yeah. to handle. Yeah. Uh, you know, with PERS's increase on yeah. the contribution level, that's going to hurt your counties and cities already. Well, we need to dig into that. Uh, we got a break coming up here. If you can hang around, we'll certainly Absolutely. talk about that. But yeah, I agree. And the, the you know this that uh, mayors and city leaders, municipal leaders, they've all expressed concerns about that. I know this is going to be an additional expense that uh, they will have to bear, and they're looking for um, some support for the state, right. uh, from the state, I should say. We got uh, Senator Tyler McCon and his guest, Senator Brian Rhodes here uh, from uh, the great county of Rankin. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. Need some good news? I've got good news. Good things with Rebecca Turner. Your daily dose of good news. Good news. This afternoon at 2 on Super Talk Mississippi. Good news. There's a ton of content from Super Talk Mississippi on our new YouTube channel. Just search Super Talk Mississippi on YouTube or go to supertalk.fm slash YouTube. Be sure and subscribe for free to get the latest scoop on what's happening in Mississippi news, politics, sports, and the good things happening here in the state. This show was previously recorded.
Welcome back, everyone. We are live in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Senator Tyler McCon. He, of course, represents District 31, Lauderdale, Newton, Scott Counties, and also a little piece of ranking now, right? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on, as always. And and, uh, in the past, you've served as the uh, chair of the Senate Forestry Committee, vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee, which we should point out is a significant part of our economy. And that's is. why it's important, right? 35 39%, I think, uh, Ag Commissioner Andy Gibson, typically that's the figures he shares. And, and, and I think he's pretty close on his numbers there. We're, you know, we're so happy. Mississippi, you know, we can still grow. <clears throat> yeah. If you want it grown, we can grow it for you. We, we send from the coast all the way up north. If you look at it from our seafood industry, moving up to our, our pine timber there in the Pine Belt area, you move on up into our delta, we send out crops around the world. And that's something that's very important. Yeah. Much less poultry, which is uh, pretty big in Scott County, where, where I grew up, yeah, and I sure. was very fortunate to be raised on a poultry farm. whole bunch of uh, farms and, and processors That's right. Um, in Scott County over there. That's right. So. Uh, we, we're continuing to see the growth there, and, and we'd love to know in the future that maybe we can continue to build in uh, that processing facilities there in Scott County to, to keep them there for the years to come. Yeah. Big part of our economy, for sure. So let's talk about uh, the ballot initiative process. Of course, uh, you know that uh, uh, based on a ruling from our Supreme Court, it's been invalidated. So we don't have one here in the state of Mississippi. That that came about when it was contested after Initiative 65, which actually passed at the ballot box. It was contested, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, this thing really doesn't align (laughs) with our Constitution which uh, actually specified um, uh, the number of signatures that had to be gathered across five congressional districts. We only have four. So that was, um, I think that wasn't well thought out when they drafted that, unless it was intentional. I don't know. It's hard to say at this (laughs) point. But um, that comes up a lot, Senator. I hear from just the public anecdotally in general. They want to see that restored. What, What do you think? You know, I, I was very fortunate this this week to be sitting down with another uh, companion of mine uh, in the Senate, and we we had a little breakfast meeting, and we talked about this issue uh, ad nauseum there for a little bit. Senator Boyd and I have, have worked on this together over the past few years. Uh, as you know, I was in here a couple times last year uh, yeah. discussing that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think it's going to go away. Okay. I think it's going to be it's there, to and uh, and I think it's going to continue to be debated uh, among your members. You've got a, a few new ones this time, and, yep. I, and I don't even know where they would stand on it. Yep. Uh, but I will say that the beginning uh, bill last year and the ending bill last year that eventually died was substantial progress for the state. I think that's a good way to describe um, it. Yeah, I, I think we we hashed through a lot of things that were uh, were questionable and things that people didn't like. Um, I agree with you. There's a lot of people that do talk about it out there, but there's a lot of people that really don't have a lot of interest there. Yeah. Uh, you know, the biggest concern is what does special interest do with it? Because unfortunately, uh, a lot of legislation we do is really good for uh, the people, and then it gets um, utilized by special interest to maybe not be so good for the people. I think that's true. And so we'll see where that lands, but I, I, I get the feeling that's going to come up. That uh, the House likely to get something done, but the Senate may draft its own version like right. we've had in the past, and and maybe we'll go to conference and hash that out and, and get something done. Uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor has indicated whenever I've talked to him that he supports uh, the ballot initiative process, but he favors a higher signature threshold to, to just make it more difficult, essentially, um, and so that it can't just be bought. 
um, you know, it's kind of the way he describes it. And that's fair. I yeah. mean, when it was first put in, there was no Facebook. There was yeah. no electronic right. media here or mail going out. You know, you had to go door to door and you had to see that person and, you know, eye to eye and tell them, this is what we want to do. Yeah. And this is where I need you to sign. Yeah. Now it's that's just true. a... You know, a, an email that's sent about 12 o'clock at night that's and somebody right. sees it and all of a sudden we've got a signature there. Yeah, I think that's right. So things have changed. Well, we'll see where that goes. Uh, any, any thoughts or ideas about uh, continuing to whack away at the at the income tax? Uh, you know, the governor has indicated that's his top priority is full elimination of the income tax. A lot of people have expressed um, their advocacy for reducing or eliminating the sales tax on groceries right. uh, is a higher priority than the income tax. What do you think? Well, I, I like the idea of us working on the grocery tax a, a lot better. I mean, okay. we, we took a huge cut uh, on the income tax you know, in this last four years. Yeah. Uh, I think we really should be doing something that does directly impact every Mississippian. Uh, there's not a Mississippian here that doesn't go to the grocery store and get a, a, a thing of milk or, or a loaf of bread every now and then or, or whatever it may be for their household, and that would go directly back to their pocketbook. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we of course, uh, have to watch that and make sure that whatever we do, we do uh, help and make the, uh, the counties and the cities whole from that income tax reduction. But if you look around, that directly impacts everybody. Yeah. That is an across-the-board tax cut, and that's something we really should be looking at. Okay. Well, we'll see where that goes. Um, uh, I know the governor said, you send me any bill that cuts taxes, I'm signing it. I mean, I've heard him say that before, so uh, I don't think he'd be upset one way or another. I think he actually believes that we could get something done on both, and it could be that we we have some – uh, some measure that phases in elimination of the income tax based on achievement of certain targets uh, from a budgetary perspective. So we'll see where all that goes. Uh, something else that um, certainly the Speaker of the House has, has talked a fair amount about is uh, school choice, education, freedom. Right. I think we're going to see some movement there, at least some, some deliberation at a minimum. Uh, what do you think about that? I would say the House and Senate kind of have a different, different uh, take on that. Well, you know, the one thing that we've not done is we haven't really had um, we haven't had the bill really come forward yeah. in the past for us to have these discussions. That's true. So what I'm excited about is seeing this discussion begin. You okay. Know, I, you know, of course, we're going to see the the public education advocates that are not going to be real thrilled about it. Uh, we're going to see, of course, the other side that's going to be pushing it, yeah. and I think we're going to see some really good discussion come from that. Uh, what do I think at the end of the day? I don't know. But okay. what I'll say is that it is a a comprehensive issue that does not, not neither part exists in a vacuum. Yeah, and and that's something we've got to remember as we go forward. Uh, you're seeing school districts start to look at, hey, we don't need these buildings anymore. Maybe we can reduce our budget with the, the Jackson City Schools doing some things, and yeah. that's been controversial. But you know what? It's something maybe they needed to do. Yeah, uh, and maybe that's something we need to do is in general is look comprehensively about this and see what we need to do. Uh, to further these school districts. We've got some really good school districts, you know. Rankin in general has, has, has got some really good schools there. We've got some other schools around that maybe are not doing so well. Yeah. Uh, but we've got some good ones in counties. So okay. I don't think we should be going to the detriment of our teachers that are there doing their best to move forward and, and teach our kids. Uh, but I am anxious to see this discussion begin. Okay. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Any reforms, and, and uh, you know, I, I advocate for uh, reasonable education choice, school choice, right. but I want to be clear, I, I don't support any reforms that would in some way harm existing good performing schools. 
we we don't want to do that. We right. don't we we don't want to tear them down or uh, impede them, hinder them in any way from continuing to perform in a positive way. Um, so there's I think there's something we could do that uh, again going back to the word balance that you used earlier. Right. And and what I've explained to the audience, the senators, that it's not like there's a template or a model other than what's been implemented in other states. We're starting out with a blank slate here. We right. make it be whatever we want that can pass the chambers and get signed by the governor. So when you look at our charter schools, I mean the charter schools that that we have out there, how many of them are failing? Yeah. There, that's a problem, and, and there, there needs to be some analysis of that. Why exactly right. is that happening? I, I kind of have a theory that we end up uh, seeing the charter schools admit uh, the students that are coming from public schools where they weren't performing very well in the public schools. Now we're trying to get them to charter schools and catch up. But I agree, there certainly needs right. to be some investigation analysis. And then uh, I think there's some efficiencies in our public schools. I don't think there's any secret about that. Um, there are those who think that uh, we got too many districts and maybe some consolidation. So, but I agree with you. A comprehensive analysis of the entire public school ecosystem is necessary here right. uh, to do something meaningful. And, uh, and I'm a product of the public school. Yeah, uh, I'm very fortunate to go to, to to Morton High School and be a graduate of that that school. And we had a great class. Yeah. Uh, but we also need to be looking back, and as you said, to be seeing who's going to those charter schools. You know, we need to be sure that the kids in there that are that are progressing and are learning to the levels they need to be learning uh, are getting the attention to move forward, and the ones that are not are getting the attention to get caught up yeah. and not have one be the detriment of the other. The lieutenant governor, every time I've seen him speak, he he's always put at the top of his list the idea of free community college. He thinks that is something that the state would benefit from. Uh, I know you don't know until you see the bill, but is this something that you feel like is going to come up? You know, if you go over to Lauderdale County, you've got Meridian's been offering tuition for their their uh, county for a number of years. Yeah, a great community uh, college. Great community college over there. We have an amazing community college system. No doubt. And anything we can do to encourage our people to go and utilize that system is something I'm for. Okay. Well, we look forward to visiting with you some more uh, as the session proceeds, Senator Tyler McCon. Over there in East Central Mississippi has been our guest. Appreciate you coming on, Senator. Thank you, Dry. And thanks to you as well, Brian, for coming on. All right, we're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. There's a ton of content from Super Talk Mississippi on our new YouTube channel. Just search Super Talk Mississippi on YouTube or go to supertalk.fm slash YouTube. Be sure and subscribe for free to get the latest scoop on what's happening in Mississippi news, politics, sports, and the good things happening here in the state. Previously recorded. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Power of love. On the ceasefire text line, someone says, 
I'm opposed to the ballot initiative. That's why we elect our representatives and senators. And that would align with Senator John Polk's position. Honestly, though, he's never said it directly. I get the impression that the lieutenant governor is not a fan. He um, and, and I think he knows that that may be politically <clears throat> unpopular, that we got to do something. So I think his approach has been, okay, well, we're just going to jack up the signature threshold to just make it really difficult to get a measure on the ballot. Now, I get the concern about powerful, well-funded special interests sort of buying their way to legislation. However, something you and I have talked about before, if you jack up the signatures, it could mean that that's all that ever gets the powerful, well-funded special interest that a grassroots movement just doesn't have the money. Because it does cost money Oh yeah, to go out and mount a campaign. I mean, you do have volunteers in these campaigns, especially when you have people collecting signatures. You will have some of them that are volunteers, but also you have some of them that are paid workers. Yeah. I mean, I think to succeed at it, you got to have some money. Oh, yeah. I think that's fair to say. So I have a little different take. I understand the concern, and I can tell you the abortion lobby. Is really, we've been watching them and reporting stories throughout the year since the Dobbs case. They have mounted campaigns in a number of states and been successful. In fact, every effort from a ballot measure perspective to either prohibit the restriction of abortion or to expand it has succeeded. The abortion zealots have won. The pro-choice community has essentially defeated the pro-life community at the ballot box. And I think that's largely because of their focus and their money. I think they came out of left field, and and, uh, a lot of pro-life people, I think, were caught off guard. Didn't expect it. Interesting. What about uh, Ken and West Point, fully licensed contractors for 25 years, being forced to join the Mississippi Board of Contractors? Yeah, you know, I actually remember back in my business days, um, some of the services we provided were subject to a contractor's license. I think mainly that uh, involved uh, our structured cabling services, which, by the way, I ended up spinning that out into a separate company altogether that focused on that and not only service my company, but third parties. Um, yeah, I, I hear you, Ken. You know, and I, I think, um, to your point, we should certainly take a look at further licensing reform in the state of Mississippi. I've always had concerns about an, um, a business's peers uh, having authority over their being approved for licensing. I'm going to go compete with you. I need a license. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but you know what I'm saying. That that kind of is the way the environment looks. So I'm with you, Ken. I think we should take a look at that. Of course, the hot-button issue in the whole world of licensing has been uh, services allowed by nurse practitioners. That, that has gotten an enormous amount of attention. 
what do they call it, right? A full licensing authority, I believe, something to that effect. And there are other states that certainly are more more generous with respect to allowing their nurse practitioners to perform certain services. So there's, look, there's strong views on both sides of that argument. And, you know, when you hear the people that express their points, they kind of both sound good. I mean, so maybe in the middle, maybe the balance that Senator Tyler McCann was talking about is where we ought to be focused. With respect to PERS, Jerry and Leesburg, Understand that any reduction of the promises made by the state to retired employees or current employees that were promised retirement from PERS will be political suicide, among other things. And Jerry, first of all, I hear you, and I agree, and we have made that point countless times. In fact, what I've said, I've gone so far as to say is, if there are any material changes to benefits for existing beneficiaries, those that are uh, retired and drawing PERS benefits, or material structural changes to future benefits for those that are currently enrolled as active members of the system, that there would be lawsuits and that the members of PERS would ultimately own the state of Mississippi, is what I've said. So nobody's suggesting that, let's be clear. The only, the only possible suggestion I've heard related to that is to perhaps freeze the cost of living adjustment at its current level and not compound it in future years for some number of years, which would, in fact, save some money. But it's not enough to cure the economic problems of the system. It's just not. I think last I looked, it's about $2.1 billion of benefits through the basic service benefit. About $800 million are paid in the form of the cost of living adjustment. Now, I will tell you this. The good news is PERS had a had a good year from a financial perspective in 2023. Of course, the markets were on fire in 2023. So listen to these figures, Rhino. For 2023, income from investments, the PERS investment portfolio, which sits at around $30 billion, $2.2 billion of investment income. Last year, $2.9 billion of investment losses. Nearly a $6 billion, actually more than a $6 billion swing. But that, for the most part, aligns with market performance in 22, market performance in 23. You have to look at it on a longer period of time because it's a, it's a long play proposition. And overall, the investment portfolio is performed in line, and I talk about this in my article, with other states and with the markets. So could it be better? Well, sure. Everybody thinks, yeah, just let me have at it and I'll get you more returns. But you're managing a gigantic portfolio here. Uh, Typically, the public pension investment portfolio in any given state is the largest in that state. Stands to reason. Maybe, I guess, some exceptions if you looked at uh, kind of the ground zero for the uh, the wealth management industry, New York. I don't know. I haven't done that. But I, I know from just researching public benefit plans, those are usually the largest in a given state, certainly in a rural state such as Mississippi. So the um, the performance was actually pretty good for the PERS fund last year. It, uh, it increased what's called its net position 
its net position. Uh, just looking at the numbers here, looks like it increased its net position. Essentially, that's its equity, if you will, uh, by mm, almost $2 billion. So it wasn't bad. And that primarily is attributed to these investment returns. So that's good. But you know this, you can't rely on that. You, you can't, you don't know. That's why you put a reasonable target in place, because you have ebbs and flows, ups and downs in the markets. So you can't go making decisions about, well, if we just have this same level of return in future years, we can make adjustments to the program on that basis. Uh, so we'll see. But that, that actually is good news. And I, and I agree with Jerry. Yeah, and I haven't heard, again, the only thing I've heard is the possibility of freezing the current level of cost-of-living adjustments, the so-called 13th check. Just let that ride for two, three, four, five years. You still get it, but it's at the level it is today. There's no 3% annual compounding, which is what we have now, which honestly has contributed to the financial instability of the program because it's not tied to the CPI. I actually go through the math uh, in my article if you're interested on that. Paul and Brandon says... I'm talking about um, the cost of health care. After my wife's accident, she took a $3,000 ambulance ride from Brandon to UMC. They only put a monitor on her and nothing else for $3,000. And so, Paul, that's the point I was trying to make earlier, which is the $3,000 that you incurred is to pay for the 10 people who rode in that ambulance that, got, that paid nothing. That, that's literally the model they're trying to figure out. We got this many paying, this many not paying. What do we got to charge the people paying to make ends meet? If everybody paid and had some skin in the game, situation would change. The question is, how do you address those who simply don't produce enough income to buy comprehensive insurance coverage? And that's kind of what I dig into in this article that I'm I'm currently drafting is just some out-of-the-box thinking on how to address that. Chris and Boomble says, us EMS workers are broke. We don't ask society to help pay for our cars or houses or anything else. Why ask or make them pay for our health care? Okay, what? how do you handle the situation where somebody shows up at the ER and they got no money and they're going to die if they don't get care? We're coming right back. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Final segment on middays. So I noted that the lieutenant governor penned an article discussing the state's labor participation rate, which is the lowest in the country. A little over 10% lower than the national rate. So I have some thoughts about that. And and the lieutenant governor in his article... uh, I think correctly points out that if we can get those people working, it would it would certainly benefit everybody in the state. I agree that effectively half the people in the state that are working are supporting the half that aren't, because it's about 51% the labor participation rate. And so 
uh, just so you know, that's a measurement of all those who are within some age range. I can't remember the exact 18, I think, to 54 or something like that. That could work. That are working. So if it's different than unemployment, unemployment measures those who are out, uh, the percentage of those uh, of, of the population that are in those that working age range that are out of work and seeking a job. The labor force participation rate doesn't consider are you looking for a job or not. It's just this is the total number of people that could work. They're not disabled. They don't have any, anything else that are, that's hindering them from working within that age range. And in Mississippi, it's like 51%. Dismal. By the way, the goofy president runs around talking about all the jobs he's created. And the labor participation rate is the key statistic there. Because it is a measurement of the total number in the country working that can work. Not just those working that are looking for work, either working or looking for work. That's a kind of a backwards calculation to get the unemployment rate. So I do agree with the lieutenant governor. This is a, a metric and an area on which she, we should focus. But here's where I differ. He talks about policies such as um, teacher pay raises and, and some incentives and retention of teachers and workforce development and how great our community college. I agree with every bit of that. All that's good policy. Here's what I think we need to do. Has anybody ever gone into these communities and approach these people who are in that 50% that can work but aren't and say, how come you're not working? I really do think it, it requires some grassroots analysis. Why are you not working? By the way, here's all the jobs available. Now, is it possible it's a mismatch that, that your skills don't fit the jobs available in your community? It's possible, but I dare say there's a lot more alignment and, de- and employers being desperate for workers, they're, they're willing to, to take a chance. And many of them have programs themselves. And they're willing to invest in these people. You know what they want? Show your butt up for work. That's what they want. And be respectful. Follow the policies. So I just I scratch my head and say, where are these people? How do they exist? And I know everybody immediately says, well, they're getting all these benefits. And I look at the benefits, and it, it doesn't amount that much. And you could say, well, health care, they're, they're getting free health care. But that only matters when you need health care. It's not like they're sending you a check. You can't eat with free health care. You can't buy a house or a place to live, a roof over your head. So I just wonder, where are they? And have we ever? And why is our rate so much lower than the other states? I don't think that means people in Mississippi are inherently lazy. What is going on here? Well, to play devil's advocate here, okay, we have the lowest cost of living. So even if you do have a lower output or input or benefits, okay, if you have your medical covered, you can get subsidized housing, you can get your groceries paid for, you can get cell phone, you can get... A deal on your electrical power or your electrical bill, your water bill, internet. If, if you even pay it, you can get internet. Yep. All of these things can be subsidized. So you're right. In a state with a low cost of living, maybe Uncle Sam is offering enough to say, well, 
you may make a little bit more if you get out there and work 40 hours a week, or you could take home a little bit less and not do anything. That's possible, but it's still, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking a little uh, more aggressively. That doesn't amount to a very nice lifestyle. No. Is it that many people that are satisfied with that? And with respect to the It seems health- at least a percentage of them would have to be. Okay. And, le- and with respect to the health care, they're getting free health care, not because they're insured, because they know if they get sick, they're going to get taken care of. That's what we've been talking about, because they don't qualify for Medicaid if they can work. They don't qualify for Medicaid because we don't cover that. If they're blind, disabled, pregnant woman, old, child, they do. But uh, this working age population that is included in this statistic, this metric of labor force participation rate, I think they just know, well, yeah, I can just run down there to the hospital. They're going to take care of me. It's not going to cost me a penny. There's no risk in it for it. But that's still, I mean, how do they get around? And probably if they do have something that they can afford from a transportation perspective, they got no insurance. We're out of here today. We thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and God bless everyone. This show was previously recorded. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.